This is Michael Cohen, and you're listening to the Mea Culpa Podcast. With the latest round of subpoenas targeting Rudy Giuliani, Sidney Kraken Powell, Jenna Ellis, as well as Eric Trump and Kimberly Guilfoyle, the January 6th committee has shown its cards, and it appears that all roads are leading to Donald Trump. The committee is demanding records and testimony from Rudy Giuliani, Sidney Powell, Jenna Ellis, and Boris Epstein. Committee Chair Benny Thompson said in a statement, quote, the four individuals we've subpoenaed today advanced unsupported theories about election fraud, pushed efforts to overturn the election results, and were in direct contact with the former president about attempts to stop the counting of electoral votes. Giuliani, Powell, and Ellis were some of the most vocal proponents of overturning the 2020 election result, leading to widely ridiculed press conferences at the Republican National Committee headquarters in D.C. and the prestigious Four Seasons Total Landscaping in Holmesburg, Pennsylvania. Epstein, meanwhile, had been in contact with President Donald Trump on the day of the Capitol riot. Jenna Ellis drafted a memo on how Mr. Trump could invalidate the election results by exploiting an obscure law. Sidney Powell, a lawyer who worked on many of the lawsuits with Mr. Giuliani, ran an organization that raised millions of dollars based on false claims that election machines were rigged. Boris Epstein pursued allegations of election fraud in Nevada and then again in Arizona and is said to have participated in a call with Mr. Trump on the morning of January 6th, during which options were discussed to delay the certification of election results, the committee said. is kind of in the thick of it from start to finish. He had communications with Trump. He was reportedly at the Willard Hotel as part of the War Council. He, of course, was engaged in bogus litigation, frivolous, nefarious litigation, trying to go into some 65 courts and argue that it was not a free and fair election. And all of the courts basically laughed him out of court and rejected his suit. So, you know, there's a lot that they want to get from Rudy Giuliani. You know, what do they want to get from, for example, Jenna Ellis? Well, we've learned that she drafted a legal memo, air quotes around legal intentional, trying to give Mike Pence a a reason, a lawful reason to either delay the count of the electoral college votes or reject electoral college votes outright. And just because somebody puts it in a legal memo, Serlina, doesn't make it legal. If you draft a memo that says, I want you to go across the street and rob the bank legally, here's a memo, it's still a crime, it's still corrupt. The subpoena seeks all documents Giuliani has detailing the pressure campaign he and other Trump allies initiated targeting state officials, the seizure of voting machines, contact with members of Congress, basically any evidence to support the bizarre conspiracy theories pushed and any arrangements for his attorney's fees. Subpoena for Giuliani and other Trump lawyers, including Jenna Ellis uh, and um, uh, Sidney Powell, is a sign that this investigation is going far beyond the events of January 6th, that they are focusing on the broader effort to overturn the president in the presidential election, focusing here on those who are most aggressively pushing the lie that the election had been stolen. The committee said in a letter to Mr. Giuliani that its investigation has revealed credible evidence that he participated in attempts to disrupt or delay the certification of the election results, persuade state legislators to take steps to overturn the election results 
and urged Mr. Trump to order the seizure of voting machines. Select committee homing in on the legal team that Trump used to try to take the battle that he lost at the ballot box and try to refight it in court. That legal effort, of course, was a spectacular failure in large part because the facts were not on those lawyers' side, but it created a moment of significant suspense in the country in terms of just how far the president would be willing to go. The troop of Republican lawyers had launched multiple lawsuits in the aftermath of the 2020 election seeking to overturn the results, with arguments ranging from dead voters to voting technology created at the direction of and long dead Hugo Chavez. Different numbers of votes being injected into the system the same identical, unique six-digit number multiple times in at least two states that we've analyzed so far, and I'm talking about like 341,542 votes for Biden and 100,012 for Trump. Um, there's no explanation, no logical explanation for the same numbers being injected 20 minutes apart into the machine. The software manual itself, you can download it from the internet, and I would encourage you all to read it because it specifically advertises some of these things as features of the system. Why it was ever allowed into this country is beyond my comprehension. Epstein has also been part of a command center at Washington's Willard Hotel that had sought to deny the congressional certification of Joe Biden's win. He has since stated that he still believed Vice President Mike Pence had the ability to send the election results back to the states. This uh, jumped out at me in the Boris Epstein letter. Uh, you are reported to have participated in a call with former President Trump on the morning of January 6th, during which options were discussed to delay the certification of election results in light of Vice President Pence's unwillingness to deny or delay certification. I don't know if you track what's public and what's not, but but what do we know about that phone call? Uh, you know, I try to track what's public and what's not, uh, and as you, you might imagine, have to err on the safe side in terms of the committee. Um, but, well, you know, obviously uh, we would like to know uh, anything that went on during that call, uh, what other options at that very late stage were being contemplated to try to still overturn the election. Uh, and, and so, uh, you know, uh, he's a, uh, obviously if he was on that call, would have a lot to tell us. Uh, if he was part of that war room at the Willard Hotel, he'd have a lot to tell us. Uh, and uh, we hope that uh, he will answer the subpoena. And if not, as with the others, we'll have to figure out what the recourse is. Nearly every challenge had been defeated in court with the three lawyers each facing separate repercussions for their involvement. Giuliani had his law licenses suspended in New York and Washington DC just last summer with a New York Supreme Court grievance committee blasting his demonstrably false and misleading statements regarding the 2020 election. Uh, the New York State Bar Association wants to remove Rudy Giuliani from his membership. Is that a move you'd support? Sure, I think it should be worth, I think it should be more than that. That's not the body that licenses uh, lawyers in New York. Uh, Rudy Giuliani should have his law license um, revoked. Uh, he should not be able to practice law. He is uh, as, as involved in this as he was in Ukraine, and he is a real bane on our political. A federal judge in Michigan also issued sanctions against Powell and her longtime legal partner, Lynn Wood, in August for even presenting their baseless claim. 
This lawsuit represents a historic and a profound abuse of the judicial process, U.S. District Judge Linda Parker wrote in an opinion. It is one thing to take on the charge of vindicating rights associated with an allegedly fraudulent election. It's another to take on the charge of deceiving a federal court and the American people into believing that rights were infringed without regard to whether any laws or rights were in fact violated. This is what happened here. Ellis has since quit the Republican Party, arguing it was not conservative enough because it didn't support Trump's lies. All of them, including Ronna McDaniel, should resign now. Until they do, as of today, I am resigning from the party. I am changing my voter registration and I'm no longer a Republican until the party decides that it wants to be conservative again. Even if I stand alone for the truth, I will stand for the truth. A compromised, corrupted majority is not a majority worth being a part of. If we genuinely want to create a more perfect union, we have to stand up for our principles against the corrupted machine of self-serving politicians. Giuliani and Powell were both also named in a $1.3 billion defamation lawsuit by Dominion Voting Systems, which argued the two, along with the my pillow fucking CEO, Mike Lindell, falsely claimed the company rigged the election for Joe Biden. The two have reportedly tried to have the lawsuits dismissed. Former president's uh, personal attorney is now facing a billion dollar plus lawsuit. Dominion Voting Systems announced today it's suing Rudy Giuliani for defamation. In a court filing, the company accuses Giuliani of making false statements about the company on Twitter, on his podcast, on television and at the rally on Capitol Hill that re preceded the insurrection on January the 6th. It also accuses Giuliani of creating and spreading lies about a stolen election and deceiving millions into believing that Dominion had stolen votes and fixed the election. As has been reported ad nauseum, there is zero evidence that the election was stolen and the former president's own people declared it both free and fair. Giuliani releasing a statement in response, though, calling the lawsuit another act of intimidation by the hate-filled left wing to wipe out and censor the exercise of free speech, as well as the ability of lawyers to defend their clients vigorously. As such, we will investigate a countersuit against them for violating these constitutional rights. Sometimes I go and look myself online when stuff comes up. This time I didn't have the time to do it. It's not my job in a fast-moving case to go out and investigate every piece of evidence is given to me. Otherwise, you're never going to write a story. You never come to a conclusion. Mr. Ellis, the committee said, prepared and circulated two memos analyzing the constitutional authority for former Vice President Mike Pence to reject or delay counting electoral votes from states where Mr. Trump's allies had attempted to arrange for the submission of an alternate slate of electors. In the memos obtained by Politico, Ms. Ellis advised that Mr. Pence had the authority to not count electoral votes from six states in which the Trump campaign falsely alleged there was widespread fraud. I gained copies of both of those memos about a month ago. We published them at Politico. One of the memos said 
that Vice President Pence could simply choose not to open the envelopes that some of these electoral ballots came in on January 6th. Another memo suggested that pieces of the Electoral Count Act, which has governed elections in the United States since time immemorial, could be considered unconstitutional. The first memo I just mentioned is addressed to Donald Trump. The second memo is addressed to a lawyer who's advised Trump in varying degrees for quite some time, Jay Sekulow. The select committee, of course, now is zooming in on the legal arguments that were made, legal arguments that were immensely consequential mm. to the way that the last months of Trump's presidency played out. Sidney Powell was among the leading promoters of some of the most far-fetched and fantastical claims of widespread voter fraud, including a bizarre conspiracy theory alleging a vast plot by China, by Venezuela, and the financier George Soros to hack into Dominion voting system machines to flip votes away from Mr. Trump for the benefit of Joe Biden. She, too, urged Mr. Trump to seize voting machines, according to the committee. Can hardly wait to put forth all the evidence we have collected on Dominion, starting with the fact it was created to produce altered voting results in Venezuela for Hugo Chavez, and then shipped internationally to manipulate votes for purchase in other countries, including this one. It was funded by money from Venezuela and Cuba, and, and China has a role in it also. So if you want to talk about foreign election interference, we certainly have it now. We have staggering statistical evidence. We have staggering testimony from witnesses, including one who was personally in briefings when all of this was discussed and planned beginning with Hugo Chavez and how it was designed there and then saw it happening in this country. Been uh, organized and, and conducted with the help of Silicon Valley people, the, the big tech companies, the social media companies, and even the media companies. And I'm going to release the Kraken. In December, Trump considered naming Powell to be a special counsel overseeing an investigation of voter fraud, even after his campaign had sought to distance itself from her as she aired wild and baseless fucking claims about Dominion voting machines. Michael, does this face look like I'm lying? Oh, oh, you, you look like the Joker. And, and what you're saying is probably libel. Well, you know what they say. You can't call it libel if it's all jibble-jabble. And you can't call it slander if it's all... Nobody says that. Michael, let me ask you a question, okay? Did you build an ark? Because a great flood's a-coming, okay? And you are just up to your neck in water, and you're going, oh, where's all my animals? And there I go by a big old bowl of your dog, and I'm like, later, skater. What are you talking about? I'm talking about, about the Kraken sign, okay? And she's gonna rod you hard and put you away wet because when this Kraken comes out, you're gonna be walking with a limp, okay? All it's gonna be left to you is the Air Jordans just smoking and Colin Doe's out here going, where's my friend Michael Tank? Where's my friend Michael Tank? Catching me just holding the flamethrower. I have no idea what you're saying. Okay. So what you're saying is I'm crazy and no reasonable person would believe me. Ah, case closed, the defense rests. Sorry, you walked right into that one. Sorry, but you did. Sidney Powell, everybody. The House Select Committee has also subpoenaed and obtained now the phone records of Eric Trump. This appears to be the first time the panel has issued a subpoena for a member of the Trump family. CNN reports the committee also subpoenaed and received the phone records of Kimberly Guilfoyle, the former Fox News personality who is now engaged to Trump's eldest son, Donald Trump Jr. 
All right. A big story breaking this morning about the January 6th investigation. It happens to be really bad news for the Trump family. Eric Trump, as well as Kimberly Guilfoyle's phone records have been subpoenaed and reportedly obtained by the January 6th committee, again, pushing forward into the inner circle around Trump and theoretically eventually to Trump himself. Eric Trump is one of Trump's sons. Kimberly Guilfoyle is the fiance of uh, Don Jr. And their records now are becoming part of the investigation. All of this points to a concerted effort to build a case against Donald Trump, which requires that they build that case from the bottom up, just like a pyramid. If the lawyers who attempted to overturn the vote represent one layer, Eric Trump and Kimberly Guilfoyle represent the next layer. They raised a ton of money for Stop the Steal and both spoke at the rally and were the connective tissue between the many disparate parts of this coup. Above them is just Trump himself, so this development could have a truly explosive outcome. This isn't something that's, you know, made up here. It's not fictitious. The bottom line is we will present compelling evidence that will be persuasive. Look at all of us out here. God loving, freedom loving, liberty loving patriots that will not let them steal this election. Norm, how important is she? Uh, she's important, Aaron. What we've seen with the committee's investigation is that they are uh, building a pyramid. Uh, at the top of that pyramid is the former president, Donald Trump. But with Kimberly Guilfoyle, who was a big part of Start, Stop the Steal, raised money, spoke at the insurrection tailgate on January 6th with Eric Trump, with the Trump lawyers who were brought into it today, uh, all of the roads are pointing towards Donald Trump himself. She was in that inner circle. She's very important. The records show information on incoming and outcoming phone calls, including the date, the time, and the length of the call. The committee also received logs of text messages, although the records do not show the content, the sources said. There is no indication that the panel has asked Eric Trump or Guilfoyle, who both spoke at the Stop the Steal rally ahead of the Capitol attack and spread false claims about election fraud, to sit for interviews or submit other documents. Ladies and gentlemen, leaders and fighters for freedom and liberty and the American dream, the best is yet to <laughs> Representative Zoe Lofgren, a member of the January 6th committee, told CNN's Don Lemon that the panel is piecing together information from Trump's inner circle and others who are in a position to see and hear what the plot was leading up to the riot. Lemon asked if the Trump family has shared any information and Lofgren declined to say, adding, nothing is off the table. We're learning something else from this round of subpoenas, which is that the committee is getting towards the end of their investigation because these people are the closest people to Donald Trump that, that, that there are. You have family members, you have Rudy Giuliani, you have Sidney Powell. These are people who were in daily interaction with Donald Trump. There is no one closer. And you know, the committee has been acting in a methodical way, working from the bottom up. We've heard many times that they have interviewed 300 people, which includes lower level people. But by issuing subpoenas to these people, it means that they are getting towards the end, which they had better be, because given the possibility of legal challenges, given the, the possibility of delay 
from witnesses who don't go to court. Um, they better start getting the, the witnesses they need in-house because um, they, they may not be in Congress uh, for that much. They may not be in the majority for that much longer. Speaking of Eric Trump, it was revealed that he took the Fifth Amendment 500 fucking times during an October 2020 deposition as part of the New York Attorney General Tish James investigation into the Trump Organization. While pleading the fifth is not an admission of guilt, Donald Trump himself has suggested that innocent people don't invoke the protection and called it disgraceful when associates of Hillary Clinton invoked it. Fifth Amendment. Bob. The mob takes the fifth. If you're innocent, why are you taking the Fifth Amendment? Fifth Amendment. Horrible. Horrible. The mob takes the fifth. If you're innocent, why are you taking the Fifth Amendment? The mob takes of it. If you're innocent, why are you taking the Fifth Amendment? While Alan Weisselberg and the Trump Organization have been charged in a 15-year alleged tax scheme by the Manhattan District Attorney, there has been some question as to whether the allegations would be tied directly to Trump or members of his family. For documents filed late Tuesday, New York State's Attorney General Letitia James said her investigators found the Trump Organization repeatedly engaged in fraudulent or misleading practices. She cited multiple cases where the former president lent his signature on documents where she says he inflated the value of his company and his own fortune. All in a bid, James says, for the Trump Organization to reap loans, tax benefits, and insurance coverage by filing misleading annual financial statements, tax submissions, and other documents. James highlighted several accounts of how she says the company inflated its bottom line, including misrepresenting the size of Mr. Trump's penthouse, saying it was triple its actual size, leading to a difference of about $200 million. In another example, James says Mr. Trump's company inflated the value of his suburban golf club by millions of dollars by counting fees that were never collected. And James's office says the company's stake in the Manhattan office building was worth between $525 and $602 million, even though appraisers at a lender said it was worth two to three times less than that. I love loans. I love other people's money. James's new filing late Tuesday evening sheds some light on this, particularly when it comes to Trump personally. It says that Trump himself signed relevant documents on multiple occasions. In one case, the documents state that his triplex apartment, which is about 11,000 square feet, the filing says, but that Trump's financial statements listed the property at 33,000 square feet and valuing it at more than $300 million. Breaking overnight, New York State's Attorney General is demanding answers in her investigation of the Trump Organization. Letitia James filed court papers requesting former President Trump, his son Donald Jr., and daughter Ivanka Trump to be questioned under oath. James laid out some of the evidence against the company and says the Trumps need to respond to this. The filing also says Weisselberg testified that it was certainly possible Mr. Trump discussed valuations with him and that it was certainly possible that Mr. Trump reviewed the statement of financial condition for a particular year before it was finalized. It says another Trump Organization executive also testified that he understood Trump would review the statements before they were filed. In another section, it says Trump personally intervened on the valuations of properties at his golf club in Los Angeles. 
Then there are properties rented and owned by Trump's own children, including a penthouse apartment that Ivanka had an option to purchase, which was appraised at $8.5 million and valued by the Trumps at $20 million and later $25 million. Donald Trump, Donald Trump Jr. and Ivanka Trump have all been closely involved in the transactions in questions, so we won't tolerate their attempts to evade testifying in this investigation, James said in a statement Tuesday night. But now what we are learning from this filing and this press release tonight is that the, the allegations are that Donald Trump, Donald Trump Jr. and Ivanka Trump uh, were very involved in exaggerating or misstating statements of assets and finances in order to obtain loans, insurance, and uh, tax credits, and to overinflate the value of various properties. Uh, there's been some suspicion since Michael Cohen's testimony in the House almost two years ago uh, that this is the investigation. So what we are now learning is that uh, the New York Attorney General's office is indeed investigating that as part of the civil investigation and is seeking to force the former president, his son Donald Jr., and Ivanka Trump to sit for depositions. Those three had already filed a motion to quash the subpoenas in court, and the attorney general is now responding to those motions in this court filing. All of this points to the beginning of the end for the Trump children being able to claim innocence in the nefarious deeds of their father. They are right there with him, plotting, scheming, and fucking defrauding. The question remains, who is going to get them first? The feds or the state of New York? You know where my money lies. And now for the main event. My next guest on Maya Culpa is the esteemed Tennessee representative, Congressman Steve Cohen. First elected to his House seat in 2007, Cohen has become a preeminent progressive voice and moral compass within Congress. He also quickly earned a reputation as a champion of civil rights and justice on the highly influential Judiciary Committee, with Speaker of the House Nancy Pelosi referring to him as the conscience of the freshman class in 2008. That same year, he was instrumental in passing the first-of-its-kind House resolution apologizing for the enslavement and racial segregation of African Americans. Nowadays, he is chairman of the Judiciary Subcommittee on Civil Rights, Ethics, and the Constitution. Beyond his leadership position, Cohen is a steadfast voice against the rising tide of right-wing extremism. Last May, he introduced H.R. 1405, which would provide a cause of action to remove and bar from holding office certain individuals who engage in insurrection or rebellion against the United States. The prescient move is a potential bulwark against Trump from holding office should his actions on January 6th be found culpable for inciting the mob that terrible day. In addition, Cohen has tangled with Trump's right-wing congressional goon squad, taking on Lauren Boebert after January 6th for potentially aiding insurrectionists. He joins me today on Maya Culpa as the January 6th committee escalates its investigation into Trump's inner circle. 
In addition, he is fighting to keep the Democrats firmly in the majority as the midterm elections rapidly approach. So let's go now to that conversation. So Congressman Cohen, Monday was Martin Luther King Day, and I couldn't help but notice how the president chastised those lawmakers who sought to wrap themselves in the rhetoric of Dr. Martin Luther King for political expediency, yet they continued to erode voting rights for African Americans and other anti-democratic maneuvers that would have been unthinkable to Dr. King. Now, House Minority Leader Kevin McCarthy, Representative Lauren Boebert, Senators Lindsey Graham and Josh Hawley, and former White House Press Secretaries Kaylee McEnany and Sarah Huckabee Sanders all praised the slain civil rights icon on Twitter yesterday on the annual celebration of his legacy. How does it make you feel when you see this kind of um, hypocrisy in motion? And how do they think that their words line up with their current actions? Well, it's despicable, Michael. And it's been going on for years. And it's been with Dr. King. And, uh, you know, I hear when I go to the black churches a lot, I'll hear ministers talk about being uh, uh, about Jesus and not of Jesus. And that's what these Republicans are. They're about Dr. King, but they're not of Dr. King. They don't know Dr. King, and they don't follow his message of caring about people uh, who are in need of health care, um, the greatest civil right that there is, uh, caring about uh, housing, caring about uh, uh, voting laws and, and the opportunity for the ballot. Uh, Dr. King was about all those things. He was about the right to organize. Uh, and that's why he came to Memphis, was to organize the um, sanitation workers for the AFSCME, American Federation of State County Employees, so they can be treated as a man. I am a man. And and these people that do it, they talk about Dr. King. This is the same type of people, or maybe themselves included, who uh, couldn't stand Muhammad Ali when he became Muhammad Ali in the 60s or later. And some of his uh, positions he took because he was Muslim, and now they all revere Muhammad Ali. But they don't know what the man was about and, and, and what they were uh, su- supportive of. And they just take the burnished Madison Avenue um, idea of Dr. King and or Muhammad Ali, uh, but they have no idea about, or just like they have no idea about Jesus. Jesus and Matthew was clear. He was about feeding the hungry and clothing the, 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 the those who, who, who were in, in need of, of, of clothing uh, and taking in uh, all kind of people from uh, lepers uh, to criminals on the, on the cross uh, adjacent to him. Uh, and, and caring about them and caring about everyone and feeding feeding people who, who needed food. Uh, so it, it's just what's happened today is it's crazy. We're living in a surreal world. And to see Donald Trump going around at these places like Florence, Arizona, and talking about the election being stolen from him, the man is mentally ill. And other times there would be a guy with a, with a, a big net, coming after him to grab him and take him back to the asylum. He's the kind of guy that you would see on television when they had the hook, right, in order to get him off as he was accepting an award. And they'd be playing, right, right, they'd be playing the music. But, you know, I did that as well. I actually posted a um, quote 
from Dr. King. Now, I don't put myself into the same category as, um, you know, Lauren Boebert's and, you know, Graham or Josh Hawley or Donald Trump or any of those. But what I did is I put it out there. Our lives begin to end the day we become silent about things that matter. That was the one that I ended up choosing. And I did that because I had on the Lincoln Project, Rick Wilson and I speaking on this podcast and there are so many things that we were talking about, including my even episode before that with Dr. Stephen Hassan, who's the um, cult, uh, who's the cult specialist uh, in extradition of uh, people out of cults. And I have to tell you, it was um, it was a tough choice which quote I really wanted to put out. There's a second one that I also thought about. But I do truly believe that those of us that speak out, that are continuing the struggle, and it is a terribly difficult struggle, simply because the people who are supporters of Trump and Trumpism are so vile in their nature, including the people whose names that I mentioned in the question to you, that I thought it was really appropriate at the time because I will continue, as do you, on a regular basis, not to stay silent, to continue to talk about Donald Trump and Trumpism and the attempted destruction of our democracy and a coup uh, on our capital. Well, it's ongoing. And what he's doing is looking at the election of 2024, and he's going to run on the idea of the big lie. And if he loses, he's going to try to have people who, and he said it, it's not so important who votes, but who counts the votes. And he's trying to get the vote counters to be his people. So when he calls them up and says, like he did with the Secretary of State in Georgia, I need 11, can you, can you get me 11,300 votes? The guy will say, how about 15,000? Will that do? He, he wants somebody to, to say, yes, sir, Mr. Trump, I'll give you 15,000 votes. And he'll steal the election. Uh, it's, it's just a, a, unfathomable. I, let me guess the second quote you were looking at from Dr. King was that the one about your not judge where you are in times of convenience and, and safety, but where you are in times of, of controversy and, and, and challenge, something like that. 100%. That's exactly what it was. The ultimate measure of a man right. is not where he stands in the moments of comfort and convenience, but where he stands at times of challenge and contrast. That's exactly because they're, they're so similar, but yet they're still so different. I do want to say something because you just brought up a very interesting point, one that I talk about a lot both here on Mea Culpa as well as on television, there was an adage that he had heard from somebody, and I don't remember who it was, but it was about how Vladimir Putin continues to have a stronghold over, um, the, over Russia and remaining as president of the country. And there's an adage that he heard, and he basically it's got to be sitting in his mind, it doesn't matter who counts the votes. Uh, it doesn't matter who you vote for. All that matters is who's counting the votes. That's a Vladimir Putin adage that Trump is that Trump is acting upon. And you once again, you nailed it right on the head. I mean, it is a scary, scary notion. I do want to just say where I disagree with you is he is not going to run in 2024. Despite all of this bullshit and all of his rhetoric, I promise you this whole thing, this whole um, th this whole shenanigans about 
uh, setting up now a campaign with this girl Wiley and other what they call, you know, Republican operatives and so on. You know, they even mentioned Dan Scavino. Dan Scavino was the general manager of the Trump National Golf Club in Westchester. He's he's far from, you know, a political operative. He basically has no fucking idea what he's even talking about 90% of the time and was actually fired by Donald, one of the few people ever to be fired and capable of coming back into his circle. But I assure you, this is all, Congressman, part of the grift. He is going to use the same BS that he's been running on, that I'm running in, well, I really can't talk about it at the moment. You know, the rules don't print. All of a sudden, he cares about rules, right? And he's not going to. This is so that he could continue to raise money, not just for himself, but smaller amounts for these other candidates. So at least he could have loyalty or think he's going to get loyalty from them in 2022 or 2024 to stop some of these commissions. Well, I hope you're right. But, you know, I, I do worry because he would like to have a revenge opportunity on everybody that he thinks has ever crossed him. And that would be by being president. He could do it with impunity because he probably would. He wouldn't think about another term and he would pardon everybody that that, that uh, he wanted to and, and try to prosecute people. Otherwise, let me ask you this, Michael. Why do you think he's going after DeSantis? DeSantis looks like uh, the, the primary person that could could give him a challenge if he ran. And he's going after him. If he's not going to run, why take on a fight with the, with the governor of your state? It's a great question, and the reason is somewhere along the line, DeSantis must have done something. We may or may not know about it. I don't know what the exact specific moment was, but DeSantis must have done something that he deemed to be disloyal. And as a direct result, he now sees DeSantis, not his competition in the event that he's going to pretend to run and so on, but it's more that He's not going to do for me what I want if and when he becomes president of the United States. So therefore, I'm not going to back him. I need to back somebody that's going to be, in Donald's mind, my puppet. He wants to be like what Putin was when he was not able to run and, uh, for the presidency. And so he made himself into the prime minister, which is a step above the president. That's when he made Medvedev. Uh, president. One of the things that Donald, in his crazy, whacked out sociopathic mind, is really believing is that he should be able to control each and every person that he is supporting or that he says anything good about. He considers the two to be the same. And that way, he retains a form of power. And in his mind, he thinks that he could become more than just a president. He wants to be like what Putin became, a prime minister of the country that would have ultimate rights over the president. He wants to be the godfather at a Mar-a-Lago and have people come down, I guess. But, you know, he's so full of, full of it. I saw where he, he put out something at his rally in Arizona and said that China and Russia don't fear us like they used to. They don't fear us. Russia fear us? He used to shine Putin's shoes. Uh, excuse me, uh, Donald, you missed a little bit there down there on, on, on the bottoms. Would you please lick the bottoms of my shoes? And he, yes, sir, Mr. Putin. I mean, it's absurd. Just, just crazy. Do you recall? Yeah. Do you recall when Donald actually 
said that I believe Putin and that I do not believe our law enforcement, our FBI and our intelligence agencies. That had to have been a kick in the ass to so many of the supporters that even to this day are still supporting him because many of them are military or have people in their family that are part of the military, that are part of government. If you're part of government and the president of the United States is sitting with possibly one of you know this country's greatest foes and you're siding with him over your own intelligence agencies. I mean, that's when they should have, you know, turn around and said that there's something significantly wrong with this man and that he is jeopardizing our democracy. Well, when you look at it, it's, just, it's crazy the support he's got. And they just are denying. They don't want to admit that the last four years or how many years has been that they've been Trump, Trumpophiles, that, that, that they were lied to and that they were duped. And they don't want to accept that. So they can't admit it. and They've got a blind spot. It's uh, just astonishing. These people, evangelical Christians support him because of his, his position on getting the three support, Supreme Court justices and, and, and challenging Roe v. Wade, and that, that's their major issue. But there's nothing, there's nothing Christ-like about this man. He's the antithesis of Christ, and it just, uh, you know, I don't. It's just amazing they have this blind spot, and, and they seem to just continue to, to, to support him. And it's military people, and you, you name it. Uh, he, he does appeal to some of these people because he's anti-establishment. But while he's anti-establishment, it's all for Trump. I mean, he's against the establishment when they don't help him. But it's just that the people won't leave him. It's just astonishing the, the, the loyalty they have because they don't want to admit that they were duped. And they certainly were duped. And uh, the, the guy is just, uh, he's, the biggest, he's the biggest con man. We had Colonel Parker here managing Elvis. Of course, we all love Elvis. And Elvis was a great singer and a good human being. But Colonel Parker used him and was a carny man, and just like P.T. Barnum. And that's what Donald Trump is. Uh, he's, he's, he's Colonel Parker, P.T. Barnum, and, and uh, Billy Sunday. See, I always find it interesting when you get people like Kevin McCarthy or Boebert or Trump, or if you notice, Donald actually did not put anything out in honor of Martin Luther King Day uh, for obvious, you know, unfortunately obvious reasons. But you have all of these individuals that go there and they try to trade off of Dr. King's legacy for their own benefit. And I, I'm personally, I was offended when I was seeing these um, tweets popping up all over, you know, with photos of Dr. King and so on. If you truly believe in Dr. King's legacy, you should not be for voters uh, for the, this act, this of uh, this voters act that's going on right now. I mean, you should be standing up against it. You should be protesting the fact that this is a act that is going to inhibit uh, people of color, black, brown, and so on, minorities from being able to vote. Um, and vote in even like this upcoming midterm election. And that's why they're trying to push it as quickly as and fighting as hard as they are in order to stop, you know, to stop it. And all these Republican, particularly Southern congressmen who are saying, oh, we've we've improved. It's not like it was in 1965. We're so much better. And we have so many elected officials who are African-American in X, Y and Z states. You know, we're not like we were in 65, but we still have certain tendencies like that. And the Voting Rights Act was renewed. In, in the early part of this century, when George Bush was president, with all with unanimously, all the Republicans voted for, it. and we're not that much different uh, from then. But we needed the Voting Rights Act at that time, and it just John Roberts found a way to say, "Oh, America's better. We don't need these 
designated areas and we'll, we'll get rid of the voting rights, the portion that has pre-clearance provisions. And we came up with a formula and uh, we had a formula then, but we got a new formula and they don't want to deal with that, but we ought to have pre-clearance, but they don't even want to give the Justice Department, they certainly don't want Merrick Garland to be overseeing uh, election laws and, and, and re, uh, gerrymandering in states and having to have pre-clearance and saying that they don't beat the test of the Constitution. Merrick Garland surprised me in a way. I, I think he's a, got a great deal of character and he's a good human being. I don't I wish he was a little stronger in some things and acted a little quicker. I wish he'd go after individual one and indict him in the case in which you had served time for because he was the person who served double time. And I wish he went after him in so many other areas. But he did go after the uh, Oath Keeper, uh, the Oath Keepers for a, a seditious conspiracy. And that was a step above just going after the people who were the foot soldiers. And he said in his speech he was going to go after everybody if they were involved, whether they were at the Capitol or not. And hopefully that includes Trump. Uh, so he's moving along, and I think he's a good man. Did you ever know a, a, of, of a judge named Katzman in New York State? No. Google Google Katzman with two ends. He died about six months or a year ago. I didn't know him until he died. What a fabulous man he was. He was the chief judge of the United States District, second district, I guess, but it's in New York. And he was appointed at the recommendation of Moynihan uh, by Clinton. I don't think he'd ever practiced law. He'd been a law professor. He was just a jewel of a human being. And he and Merrick Garland were friends. Merrick Garland was the chair of the chief justice or chief chief, chief judge, administrative judge, whatever they call him, of the D.C. district. Casman uh, was in, in, in the second district, which is in, in New York, Manhattan, I think. But Casman was a great man, and I think he admires him, and just a brilliant man who cared about legal services for the poor and cared about the poor and was just to read about it. You'll, you'll fall in love with it. He was just a human a angel of a person. You know, I got to give you a lot of credit, Congressman. You know, you sit amongst a group of individuals who behave so foolishly. They say such stupid things. Their actions are so anti-American. It's so anti-democracy. I don't know how, you know, some congressmen don't, it's, I don't understand how it's not more like England with Parliament, where they get up, they start throwing shoes at each other, they start yelling at each other during the middle of um, their speeches and so on. I mean, I would lose my shit because I know I don't have a lot of patience for stupidity. And I sit and and I'm just going to go right back to the same people, right? The you know Kevin McCarthy, Jim Jordan, you got you know um, Lauren Boebert, Marjorie Taylor Greene, Ted Cruz on both in the House and the Senate. I don't know how more. More people don't end up walking around with black eyes because I could not sit there and listen to the stupidity over and over and over. I don't understand how anybody can get up and be against voters' rights. I just don't understand it. And then go on to their Twitter accounts in order to promote the man who was probably most influential in that area and praise him. Yeah, it is. It's, it's, it's hypocrisy. It's difficult. You know, we have different rules. I mean, sometimes, but you have to work with these people. It's very difficult. I had a situation to where uh, the senator from my district, Marsha Blackburn, was questioning a nominee for the, for the Sixth Circuit Court of Appeals, a black man. He'd be the first black man from Tennessee ever on the Sixth Circuit, and I think in the second African-American from Tennessee ever. Uh, and she said, I can't support this man. 
because when we got into it and looked into his background, he had a rap sheet. His rap sheet, quote unquote, he had a ticket, 45 and a 40, and two others driving through Mississippi and Alabama. And when you're driving while black at Mississippi and Alabama 12 years ago, you're lucky you got a ticket. Uh, that's a rap sheet. He wouldn't have said that to a white, she wouldn't have said that to a white person. She probably wouldn't have said that to an African-American female, just a dog whistle. But you, you, you have to, you know, you have to work with those people. It's, it's very difficult. And if there's some of them, that's the idea why a lot of people aren't running for re-election in Congress. A lot of Democrats are fearful that the Republicans will get the majority and a Kevin McCarthy or a Jim Jordan will be speaker. And that some of these people, somebody like Jim Jordan or somebody else will be a chairman of the Judiciary Committee. And, and my committee right now, subcommittee on civil rights and civil liberties will be either Mike Johnson or it'll be uh, Matt Gates. I mean, who knows what they'll be and, and what Lauren Boebert will do and what, and, and you know, it, it's going to be, it's going to be Mondo Connie. It's going to be really, really crazy. And it's difficult to see that. And I, I'm going to run, but I hate the idea if they get the majority and I think it's, a, they, they probably will, it will be hell to, to, to bear it. And I guess what I'll have to do is be like Michael Cohen and uh, just, uh, I'm not going to throw shoes but I'll throw some verbal barbs. Yeah, I think you're going to have to look. I know Marsha Blackburn. I know her quite well. Um, spent quite a lot of time with her. She actually wanted a spot in the administration. Trump wouldn't give it to her. He didn't like her. He didn't. I mean, think about it. She was really one of the earliest supporters of his campaign. She used to come around on a regular basis to the office. Um, she called me and said, hey, I'm going to be in New York. Can I come on up? Sure. And I bring her into Trump's office. They would engage in conversation. She wanted, you know, I think, to be um, secretary of the economy or something like that. And um, he didn't want her in the administration at all, which is interesting considering she seems to be such a massive supporter you know, of his. I, I don't get it. But I do want to ask you, Congressman, last week's arrest, and the gentleman you were referring to was Stuart Rhodes, uh, for the seditious conspiracy. At least to me, it seems to signal a more aggressive phase of the January 6th investigation, yet still... We seem no closer to indicting those who truly planned the January 6th insurrection and who put groups like the Oath Keepers and others in motion. Do you believe that Merrick Garland should be more aggressive in terms of pursuing Donald Trump and his family and his uh, inner circle for their actions on January 6th in light of these recent indictments? And do you think that he stepped up his game since your criticism of the attorney general this fall? Well, I think a little bit, but I think he is, he's, he's a, a very much a measure, measured man. Uh, he's never really been a, a, a man particularly of, of action. He's been a, a, a jurist who listens to arguments and rules. And he and he's, uh, was acceptable uh, Probably they thought to the Republicans, and that's why President Obama nominated the Supreme Court. He was a distinguished jurist and a brilliant man, but not so uh, far out on his opinions that the Republicans might not support him. Well, they wouldn't have supported anybody, as it turned out. But I think he's coming along. You, know, you build your cases in the Justice Department from the bottom up, and you hope you get a few people to, to, to flip and, and give you information on somebody above you. And maybe they're hoping one of these Oath Keepers will give them something where they had contact with Bannon or with Flynn or with the Giuliani or with uh, the, the hat man, Roger Stone, or, or somebody. And, and, and eventually they get somebody to flip to get to, to for Trump. And that may be the ace card Trump's holding. If he has to be president, pardon all these people. So that's one thing he needs. He needs to be able to have all these people who can support him 
and, and, and fealty toward him so that if, if they get arrested for something, convicted for something, they'll know now that there's an appeal it long enough for him to get in office and he'll pardon them for allowing the justice system. And uh, But I think Merrick Garland's coming along. He's slower than I wished he was, but he is coming along. He's made the step from the, the bottom level to the second floor, and maybe it's a way to get to the top. So here's what we know. And on this show where we're critical of everyone, it's not a show where um, it's all anti Trump. I mean, you know, we criticize those people who deserve to be criticized. And yes, I agree with you. Merrick Garland has been incredibly slow in virtually every single thing that has come before him. When we're talking about the January 6th insurrection, there's facts that we know, not because we're making it up like Trump and Trump supporters do, uh, Fox News and so on. It's because it's a fact. The DOJ has already, Merrick Garland has already stated that they have identified and have spoken to more than 300 individuals. Now, you know, I've been before Congress and the Senate in these um, committee hearings, and each hearing lasted a minimum of nine hours. And I talk about this on the podcast before. That's 2,700 hours, which equals 112 and a half days of continuous investigation. You have a hundred, it's a third of a year that you have literally spoken to people about one single case. And it's not that difficult once you have all of the text messages and the emails and communications going back and forth between people inside the Capitol and people on the outside. I mean, they know, for example, that there's this, um, this, it's more than just the Roger Stones, the Don Juniors, uh, the Donald Trumps and so on. There was an entire meeting the night before at the Willard Hotel. They know all about that too. They have the documents. You have is what we like to call in law, documentary evidence. This is not some hypothetical hearsay communication. These are actual communications that went on including people who had set up that rally. Uh, we're talking about the young girl, Jennifer Lawrence and Dustin um, uh, Blackman. I, believe, I forget what his uh, last name is. Um, we also know that Laura Trump and Eric Trump, along with an Amy Kramer and a Kylie Kramer, that they took over that ellipse rally and turned it into a march. I personally don't understand how it's possible that after a year plus... We still don't have more indictments. The only indictments that they have are people like the Oath Keepers and others. Now, they deserve what they're going to get. But I'm talking about the real people, the real people that incited this and the real people that got this rally going. Well, there are people, with, including Supreme Court Justice Clarence Thomas's wife. She was involved in organizing and, and, and the, the rally. Uh, there were lots of people that organized the rally. They knew what was going to happen. They knew the intent of it. It, it wasn't just a, a, a spontaneous combustion. This was planned, and there was planning going on, and, and they, I think they'll get to it, and I think they'll be indictments. I've read, I don't recall where I saw it on social media, but it was somebody I respected, and it's a, one of the talking heads on MSNBC or CNN. It wasn't Joyce, uh, but one of the former prosecutors, and they said it would be tough. They, they wanted to see Trump uh, get his uh, – uh, uh, being indicted, but they thought it'd be difficult to get a conviction, and they thought that maybe that's what slowing up Merrick Garland. Uh, it probably would be difficult to get a conviction uh, because you know, he, unless they have some smoke and gun with him telling people this is what it is or a paper, because he always 
as you probably know as well as anybody, he cautions his words. He, he will say something like, uh, I want you to be peaceful and I want you to be uh, uh, patriotic or some horse manure like that. And then the next minute he's going, but if you don't fight like hell, you're not going to have a country. So well, he gives you a fight like hell statement, he gives you a peaceful and patriotic statement. And then he said, and I understand, I read that he, he did want to go or told somebody he wanted to go to the, to the Capitol, but the Secret Service told him, we can't give you protection, we can't allow it. He knew he wasn't going to the Capitol when he said he was going to go to the Capitol with them. But he's a consummate liar. He's a consummate liar. He should be, he should be uh, what is it, you turn into the pillar of stone, pillar of salt. <laughs> yeah. Well, then let me answer this, Congressman. What else do you think that Merrick Garland needs to prosecute Donald Trump for inciting the insurrection? I mean, how is it remotely feasible that this country and the attorney general can let him get away with it without any repercussions? Again, there's so much documentation. If you have 112 and a half days straight of testimony, that's not even inclusive of the amount of paperwork, emails, text messages, etc. that they must have. They probably have an entire storage bin filled of documents that they've obtained from these 300 individuals. Because you know today, nobody sends letters anymore except for Trump and Kim Jong-un. Nobody sends love letters, right? You send an email, a text, and each one of those constitutes one piece of paper. You have 300 people with I don't even know how many documents it must be, each one indicating that it's Donald Trump who started this. That's what was going on through his head. And now you now you don't even bring the indictments against the, the top dog. It, to me, it just doesn't make any sense. And I think that's some of the frustration that Americans are having right now with our Department of Justice. I've been calling out for it for a long time, but I do think he's he's in, on the path. And I think he needs to, he, I don't know if he's gotten to the, to the to the Willard Hotel gang yet, but if he gets to them and and, 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 and questions them, I know Bill Barr has, has uh, it's my understanding Bill Barr has testified to the committee or committee members, but I don't know if, if at Stone, and Stone would probably not testify. Uh, Bannon didn't testify, and they, I'm sure they had, I don't, I don't I haven't heard anything about Flynn or, or the, the, the Trump kids, but, you know. They, they need to get to that level. They need to get into the Lord Hotel and get some statements or some emails or something. I think they have stuff that he might feel comfortable with. But, I, you know, I agree with you. It's there. But right now it's there just basically on him saying, go to the Capitol. I'll go with you. If you don't fight like hell, you're not going to have a country anymore. Uh, you can't. You'd like to see something more concrete. Steve, what we know from members, including Ivanka's statements, including Mark Meadows' statements, for 187 minutes, this orange tangerine decided that he was going to stand there and admire the actions of a paramilitary group trying to storm the Capitol to prevent the, you know, lawful certification of the president. I mean, I just don't understand and I say this all the time, too. You don't need to kill 10 people to be a murderer. Just get them on one thing. It's something that I've also said to the attorney general here in New York, as well as the district attorney. You don't have to have a litany of, of um, criminal actions in order to put the, put, I mean, just put them behind bars or 
create a situation where he cannot even lie anymore about a possible 2024 election, that he becomes so fucking toxic to the Republican Party that no Republican in their right mind, and we have quite a few that aren't in their right mind, would ever ask him for an endorsement. That's how you box baby into the corner. Well, you're right. You're right, Michael. You need to do that. You it's sad to see Catco announce he's not going to run for re-election. He was a good guy. Uh, certainly Anthony Gonzalez in Ohio is not running because they voted to impeach. And they just didn't want to put up with it. They've gotten so much abuse from the Trump supporters on social media and threats to their family. Gonzalez got those. I'm not sure what Catco's got. But they decided not to run. And two years earlier, there were really good people who just couldn't stand it anymore. There was a, a congressman from up in Michigan who was a good guy. And he told me, he said, I just can't stand serving with, with Trump anymore. And he, he, he didn't run for re-election after, after three terms. And then there was the guy uh, uh, in, in Naples, who uh, uh, Rudy, who a good man. I think he served a term or two, and he quit. And then there was a guy from Michigan who, who since deceased, but he couldn't stand it either. Uh, but they didn't stand up to him when they were in Congress. They were quiet. Uh, I tried to get Mitchell. Mitchell was from Michigan and, 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 and Rudy to sign on to the impeachment and vote for impeachment. They wouldn't do it. Um, it's just a shame they had their chances to stand up in, in times of, 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 of challenge and, and when you needed courage, as Dr. King talked about. Instead, they didn't do it. Um, Trump's losing a little bit of support. I think his numbers have come down some. Um, I think he's losing. Uh, some people are talking out against him that you'd be surprised. We're surprised about. And and I, I think that there's enough Republicans that don't want to see him at the head of the ticket. But whether they'll be courageous is another issue. You know, I'm glad you brought up Katko because obviously earlier this week, um, New York Representative John Katko, who was one of 10 Republicans, right, one of 10 who voted to impeach Donald Trump, became the third lawmaker in this group to announce that they would not seek the reelection um, for their for their office. Now, this type of political purging has really profound consequences as it solidifies Trump's cult-like hold of the GOP. And what it does is it creates a party of mini Trumps. So I'm curious, as a member of Congress yourself, how you view this purging of moderate Republicans from the party. And how will people like Katko and others who were moderate Republicans, how will you ever as Democrats be able to accomplish anything when there's no way to reach across the aisle in order to accomplish anything bipartisan? Well, it's very difficult because they, and I hear so many people and, and good, good people of good conscience, and they go, why can't y'all just work together and find some compromise? And then you had Christian Sinema come up with that speech on the floor. And when I was watching her speech on the floor, I, I just watched it and I thought, Mike, one thing you do learn in Congress is that there is no compromise because the Republicans, Mitch McConnell, just as soon as Barack Obama was sworn in, said our job is to see he doesn't have a second term. He basically said the same thing about Joe Biden, and that, that it's about power. McConnell wants to be speaker uh, leader again, and, and they want to have a president and, and have power. McCarthy wants to be speaker. So the, the compromise, they don't want to give Biden any victories. And even the, the 13 people that voted for the bipartisan infrastructure bill in the House, they got abuse from House members for, for voting for it and from Republicans. So it's, it's very difficult to, to, to think that you, and so you, the people you can work with uh, do quit, and they quit in 2020, and they quit this year, and there'll be other good people quitting, but the Bo Barretts and the Marjorie Taylor Greens and 
and uh, what's the guy in the, in the wheelchair? The wheelchair guy. Oh, so uh, you talk about Cawthorn. Yeah, he's awful. I mean, he, he gives God, God, what's what was his name on him? And the great Gatsby that was Caulfield or something. He gives him a bad name. But anyway, he's just awful. And they got these other people. And and Matt Gates, Matt Gates coming out and he's he's auditioning for his, for 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 a uh, uh, pardon, I think, because he's going to have trouble in Florida. Did yes, I read where his girlfriend testified before the grand jury. That was not a good thing for Matt. No. So I mean, it's just a difficult thing, and it's hard to work with. So there are a lot of Republicans you can work with on on basic issues concerning certain funding, and they'll do okay. But when it gets to the big picture, they're not going to they're not going to stand up for the Constitution. They're not going to stand up for democracy because they're afraid of Trump and they're afraid of their base and their base doesn't understand the constitution and their base doesn't understand uh, what, what's at risk. But when you turn and you say that there are things financial that they're willing to work with you, they weren't willing to work with the president or the entire democratic party when it came to uh, the COVID relief package. I mean, there are people in every single state that are desperate for that COVID relief package money. And still, they refuse to sign it because they said it had other issues into it and so on. Nobody seemed to have stopped Trump when he wanted to. The only person that stopped Trump from getting the money out quicker was Donald himself because he wanted his signature, not Steve Mnuchin's, on the bottom of each and every check. You know, you know what was going on in that crazy man's head? He thought that people would, because everybody has a, comp- uh, a scanner or something in their house, uh, a printer, or that they have access to one, whether it's at work or at a local FedEx or something like that, that they would take a copy of it. They would either put it on their refrigerator, put it in a, in a little frame, showing that Donald Trump's signature that he gave me money. People are just wackadoodle. But knowing that, he stopped people from getting their money several weeks because Steve Mnuchin had signed the checks. And he was absolutely 100% appalled. Almost got rid of Steve Mnuchin for that act. I didn't realize that. that Mnuchin could have substituted his name for Trump's? So originally, the COVID relief checks would be by the, right, by, um, the Treasury Secretary. I mean, that's just how it is, the same way that the Treasury Secretary has his signature on, on, um, you know, on the bills. Um, in this specific case, Trump said, no, 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 it's my package, it's my money. You see, the man is so delusional, he actually believes that the U.S. Treasury belongs to him. I mean, that's just how delusional he is, and yet people still continue to support him. But you are right about that, Congressman. He's losing more and more people on a regular basis. Um, and you could see that. I don't know if you saw this, but there was like um, there was an article that was written, and I think it was entitled like a collective chorus of yawns. Trump's tired Arizona speech was a tremendous flop. Now, you're seeing this all over the place because he's a one-trick pony. This is a guy that goes in, quite, quite frankly, folks, they stole the election from us. They stole, We've all heard that shit over and over and over. It was no different than even after his win in, in 2016. He continued with the same thing, talking about, oh, we killed it in Arizona. We killed it in Georgia. We killed it here and there, right? And that's all that he knew in order to talk about at these rallies. These people are sick and tired of hearing the same. It's almost like 
watching, you know, Netflix and there's only one movie on and that movie, you know, is the one that's shown over and over and it's the only thing that you're going to hear. After a while, yeah, you start to yawn because it's fucking boring. He's boring. And that's what people are beginning to see. He's crazy and he's boring. He is. He's the same thing over and over again. It is a broken record. Uh, and and it's, 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 the man is, is uh, he's an egotistical guy and he, he likes the attention. He likes to be up there on the podium to speak. Um, um, God knows what Melania has got to do to amuse him. Uh, but it's part of the part of the package. <laughs> NFTs of her hat and her eyes. But it's true. He is um, an egomaniac. And that's one of the reasons why I always state, Congressman, that he's not going to run in 2024. He has an incredibly fragile ego. Incredibly fragile. Like, you wouldn't believe it, but it's more fragile than people even think. He would lose the ability to grift like he's doing now when he loses the second time around in 2024, if in fact that he would run. Because he can't come back and say, ah, folks, they did it to us again. Now we have to take a bump. It doesn't work that way. It's, It's the boy who cried wolf now twice. So that big lie disappears when he loses again, and he knows, he knows based upon the numbers and statistics that he doesn't have a shot in hell. There's not enough Republicans in order. I actually don't even believe that if he ends up deciding to run, I don't even believe he gets the nomination. I believe that people that you have seen come out and support him and fight for him will turn around and be his, his worst adversaries because they will start to expose him you know, and things that he did over and over again. And I bet you'll also start to see information leaking to the press about things that he did, communications, in order to really put an end to him. They're going to do to him what he did to the other 17 Republican um, contenders. Well, I hope you're right, Michael. I just think he's going think, to, I think he'll run. And I think he, he likes being the king and he wants to get vengeance. And, and I think he'll, and he loves the attention and he'd love to be able to, 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 defeat Biden because Biden beat him. But I, I hope I'm wrong. Uh, but uh, I, I just I think the man's uh, criminally sane, insane. And uh, I think he, he could run. I definitely think he could. So let me ask you then, because you recently tweeted about the potential for a presidential run by Kristen Cinema. You know, who believes that her brand of bipartisanship would appeal to a wide swath of the electorate. In response, <laughs> you wrote, and I quote, eliminating the political divide manifested and exacerbated by Trump is very complex, not cinemaplistic. If you would, please unpack for my listeners what you meant here, as I believe it's an important point that's lost on people like cinema who seem to long for a political era that no longer exists. Well, that's exactly right. It's not simplistic. I said cinemaplistic, which is what her speech was. I mean, you just can't say we need to get together and uh, have more time working to find common ground. There isn't common ground. The Republicans aren't going to be beaten on God, gays, or guns. Guns is a big issue to Democrats, and there'll be no compromise there. There'll be no compromise on us, uh, on, on choice, and, and that's the God portion of this. And, uh, and 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 then the Republicans, while there's log cabin Republicans and they're gay Republicans, we've come a long way. They're not going to be leaders in those areas to try to give people additional rights to uh, um, 
exercise um, decisions that make their lives better simply because of who they choose to love, et cetera. They've never been on the forefront of those issues. Uh, there are other issues where they won't come come either because race is a, is a, is a major uh, common ground for the Republican Party, and they are concerned about losing their the, the, the white majorities in their areas uh, to blacks or brown, uh, Hispanic, and they're going to play on that. So they're not going to be for immigration. They're going to play the wall. Uh, and they're going to play on people's prejudices and their fears. So it's, it's simplistic to think that you can just sit down and, and work with each other. Um, those days don't exist. Uh, the days of uh, uh, Everett Dirksen and Charles Percy and Nelson Rockefeller, and uh, they're just, they're just, those type of Republicans aren't in the Republican Party. And even Mitt Romney, who got respect for, you know, he's, not, he, he's, he's not being as strong as he could be. Uh, and and they're just, he's, he's one of the few that's still around that, but that other era, of course, his father, George Romney, was of that era. But uh, it's, it's, it's not a simple thing. It, it, it's all about power. And it's about impressions and it's about illusions. And, and that's what the Republicans have, have, are. They, they, they have one thing that's beating the Democrats in 24 and getting majority in 22 and trying to get the Senate. It's power. It's power. And when they got power, they named the judges. Trump did name, get three Supreme Court judges in, which was two of them, I think, were really illegal. I mean, Merrick Garland should have had a hearing and Obama's judge should have been put on the bench. The idea that you don't do it in the last year was horse was poppycock. And then when it comes up with Judge Justice Ginsburg dying and they come up with, with Amy Coney Barrett, they, they did it right before the election, let alone you know, eight, 10 months out. It was done within two months of the uh, change of administrations. So those seats, they shouldn't have done Amy, Amy Coney Barrett. They shouldn't have done um, Gorsuch and, uh, and Kavanaugh. They should have had a, the FBI should have finished up their hearing and interviewed the women. Uh, Kavanaugh, he, he sexually abused that woman. And God knows who paid off his country club dues and his uh, debts that he had. He had lots of debts. Um, and I think it had to be gambling debts. I mean, you don't get that going to that many baseball games, which he went to with the Nationals games and having large debts. Uh, it's, it's not popcorn. You can't go into big debt over popcorn and beer. Yeah, that so, is true. Uh, somebody paid those off. You know, I agree with you on Mitt Romney. Mitt Romney is a good man. I don't care Republican. I wouldn't care Democrat, Independent. He happens to be a good man. I've spent a lot of time with Mitt Romney, with his wife, Anne. I've met most of his children, uh, became friendly with Spencer Zwick, his campaign manager. And I have to tell you, he's a good man. And he's taken a beating for his position, which is interesting to me. And I bring up Mitt Romney really in, in contrast to Kristen Cinema, because I don't understand her, and I and I was hoping that you can sort of unpack something um, for me. You know, her comment about the filibuster. I mean, she said removing the filibuster would not guarantee, and I'm going to quote now, that we prevent demagogues from being elected and that getting rid of it would merely be treating the symptom of partisanship and not the underlying problem. Well, if you acknowledge that there's an underlying problem and that there's a symptom here, okay, you don't want to vote um, for the filibuster. You want to go against your party. You want to go against your president and so on. What's the answer then? Just to turn around to do nothing? I'm not so sure that that's an answer. Her speech was just, it was Pollyanna. And yeah, it's, this, you know, because you, if you get rid of the filibuster, it doesn't mean you're, you're not going to have a, uh, 
a demagogue, but you could have a demagogue and, and, and they got away with whatever they wanted. I just think cinema cinema's a contrarian by nature and, and sometimes it's without without a, 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 a core belief. When she ran for the state legislature in Arizona early in the century, she was a Green Party person and considered a gadfly. She still is a gadfly to some extent, but she was just uh, she was a Green Party and she got beat several times. And then when she finally won, she didn't get much accomplished, but she got to be friendly with the Republicans and found out she could get a little bit accomplished. Uh, in the House, when she served, I think she served six years with me in the House. I don't remember her accomplishing anything. Uh, she likes to run, you know, marathons and triathlons and, and shop. And uh, what she did with the president was really uh, a, a poor taste. I mean, if you want to beat for the filibuster, which is years of Jim Crow, which she shouldn't align with. And, and Martin Luther King III made it clear that she not history would not treat her kindly for that position. Uh, but, you know, to, to, to go up there right before the president is going to go to your caucus and speak was disrespectful. And hopefully Biden will uh, make sure Mark Kelly gets everything in Arizona. Uh, she doesn't get anything. I mean, what she did was, was, was really despicable. And politically, it was a violation of the rules. You don't, you don't do that to your president. What's worse, what's worse is if you unpack her words, I mean, and I'm going to quote again from when one party need only negotiate with itself, policy will inextricably be pushed from the middle towards the extreme, noting that she does not support that outcome. And she knows that Arizonians do not either. And I'm saying to myself when I was reading this, what is she even talking about here? How do you know that it will inextricably push it to the extremes, right? Middle policies. What middle policy did we see during the four years of the Trump administration? In all fairness, what extremes or did we see under the Barack Obama administration? What, you didn't like the, uh, the CARES Act? You didn't want everybody to have insurance? Okay, you know, you're entitled to your position. But to turn around to say that, all policies are going to be far extremes, and that's why she's going to, you know, fight against the filibuster. When you're the president of the United States and your party controls the White House, it's supposed to be your agenda. That's why you're the president, because the majority of Americans voted for you and for your agenda. She, on the other hand, doesn't believe that the president's agenda should be, you know, should be first and foremost. I don't get it. Well, the Senate already is, is, is skewed so much toward the small states, uh, the North Dakotas, the South Dakotas, the Wyoming's, the Montana's, all those small states have got an equal number of senators to New York State and, and, and California, too. I think I think I saw some statistic that 60 percent of the people who who live in states that have Democratic uh, senators, that 60 percent of the country live with Democratic senators. So 40 percent who live in Republican states are controlling the Senate because it's 50-50 split. The filibuster on top of that gives them even more power. I don't know of a legislative body in the world, except for constitutional amendments that requires more than a majority in either of their parliamentary houses. It's always a majority, the majority rules. And that's the way it is. And I think we're very unique in having this filibuster, which is not in the constitution. And half the time it's ever been used was to kill civil rights bills. Uh, it's just something that, uh, uh, is is alien to, to, to democracy, and the Senate is kind of alien to it because, they, you know, when they found the country, the states weren't that different in size, not like they are today. 
which makes it so much more uh, uh, minority rule. The Senate is minority rule because it's 40% of the country are those states. And uh, that needs to change too. It's not gonna because the constitution is so hard to amend, but they've already got uh, an upper hand and then they are defeating legislation. And, and the idea that, that uh, the New York senators vote should be the same as a senator from South Dakota or North Dakota or Montana or Wyoming or Alaska. There are a lot of states with just two senators and they have the same now, every state has two senators, but there are a lot of small states that only have two reps or one rep because they're that small in population, and they have two senators. Like Vermont. Vermont's got two senators and one rep. New Hampshire's got two reps. They're small states, but they're equal in the, in the Senate, and that gives a minority of people who happen to generally be the more conservative brands uh, an outsized influence on what happens in, in, in our government. So then let me ask you this, Congressman. President Biden recently renewed his commitment to voting rights and for the very first time discussed his support of ending the filibuster, which has thus far stymied all of the Democrats' efforts to push through legislation to this effect. What's the political reality of making this happen when you have these intransigent um Democrats like the Kristen Cinemas and the Joe Mansions blocking the way forward. Is there anything that Biden can actually do? Not, not really. He doesn't have a vote. He's got suasion, and whether he, you know, but but you have the difficult thing, Michael. As you, I'm sure you know, you know, you, you can't go too far with Mansion, or he could become a Republican, and then you then you don't get any judges approved. You get nothing done because it's 51-49 Republican. So if you threaten him, we're not going to give West Virginia anything or we're going to take the Appalachian Commission that we gave your wife the opportunity to be the chair of or the co-chair. And we take that some powers from her or some monies from her. Uh, that just can alienate him where he becomes a Republican and he wouldn't hurt him. He doesn't have a whole lot of terms to go. And he, he hates the Republican governor, but he doesn't have any allegiance to the Democratic Party. Uh, and the same thing for Sinema. She, she's had more friends on the Republican side when she was in the House than she did on the Democrat side. She spent most of her time hanging out on the Republican side and smoozing with those Congress people. And I think it's the same thing in the Congress. And McConnell thinks she's a profile in courage. So but Biden's got a tough time. I don't think he can get Manchin or Cinema. I think Cinema basically drew her, her red line, and I don't think she'll, she'll budge. And she does have uh, delusions of, of possibly running for president or having some national maybe what she wants is a Fox TV show or, or something like that. But she has some other goal rather than just running for re-election to the United States Senate, I think. And, and, and Manchin is, you know, I think, I think Joe is, he's a little older than me, I think, but so he's got at most one more term, I guess. And he can win as a Republican and he could change parties. So you don't want to lose him because then you lose your majority, your 50 votes. And if you don't have your 50 votes, you're really hurt. Yeah. But you don't have it with him either way. Right. Which is sad. we had on a lot of things. We had on judges, and that's real important. And you and what you got it on, you got to do and, and get. But if you, if you lose him, you get it on nothing. So you can't. It's hard to. It's hard, and that's where you you threat is the, the power of the purse. And he can threaten West Virginia and Arizona with certain decisions or funding or influence on judges or whatever. So he's got to keep him in the party. So it's he's he's he's. Remember, a filler on the roof. He's a filler on the roof. It's a precarious situation. Yeah. Yep. I certainly do. Well, you know, um, Congressman, the hour goes by very, very quickly. And I have one last question. Of course, the question, I always bring it back to myself when I talk to you, because you were 
absolutely tremendous. It's how we first started uh, speaking. Uh, I saw on, it was uh, in October when you appeared before the House, um, well, you were part of the House Judiciary Committee and you were, um, you confronted Merrick Garland um, in terms of the fact that I had been convicted of a felony for paying off an adult film star who had sex, not with me, but with former President Trump. And I'm going to quote for a second because you said Michael Cohen has a felony on his record and spent time in prison for paying at the direction of it should say it really should have been at the direction of and for the benefit of President Trump's hush money to Stormy Daniels and another woman. Well, first, let me just say that that's actually not accurate. I never paid the other woman. That's um, uh, what's her name? Karen McDougal. That was paid by David Pecker of the National Enquirer. Right. Um, So, right. Um, I believe it's pretty well known that Trump was individual one, as described in the indictment. Um, He couldn't be indicted because the Department of Justice policy, you don't indict a sitting president. He's no longer a sitting president. So to switch gears for a moment, because, again, you know, it's about my lawsuit against Bill Barr, Donald Trump, the U.S. government and so on for retaliation. Um, against me and violating my constitutional rights, my First Amendment constitutional rights, remanded me back to prison in July of 2020. And that was all because I refused to waive my right to publish the book Disloyal. If the president of the United States is allowed to retaliate by imprisoning his rivals for publishing unflattering or derogatory information, would you not agree with me then that we're kind of like in deep shit as a nation? If you would, just discuss with me for a moment how you view the case against Trump and Barr. Well, I, I, I admire you for bringing the case. You were your, denied your First Amendment rights, and that's why they punished you. And it was the judge that... that, that ruled against them and ruled for you and it gave you back your house arrest instead of your, I think, were you in solitary? I was for an additional That's 15. Astonishing. It brought me up yeah. to 51 days of solitary confinement. And when I mean solitary, I don't want people to think that you're out of that cell for even a minute. Uh, you're not. You're basically locked in there uh, and that's where you stay. Yeah. Well, it was a bad situation, but I admire your suit, and I hope you're successful in your, in your, in your case, because they, they definitely did violate your rights. And it is scary to think that's something you think of in a, in a uh, banana republic or Eastern European Soviet satellite country, or, or, or directly in Russia. You don't think of it as America. And I couldn't believe they did it, and they did it. And uh, it's, it's just astonishing what, what Trump got away with and what he did. And Barr was complicit. I mean, it got to be so bad that he did finally quit around Christmas because he kind of think he saw the handwriting on the wall, what they were going to try to do with the election on January 6th. He probably gave him some good testimony. But Barr, he was a bad attorney general, and he was there to advance the agenda, I think, of the the, uh, Christian right to get the three judges. And that's why he was there. He's part of that uh, uh, crowd in Washington that was – that was their, their major issue. But I admire you for that. I hope they go after him on as individual one. I hope they go after him on other cases because he's, he's, he's been uh, a, a gangster. And uh, we'll see what happens. But this goes right back to where we first started our conversation about Merrick Garland and everything is so slow. For example, in July, on July 24th of 2020, 
Congressman um, Ted Lieu and Hakeem Jeffries, they penned a letter to Michael Hurwitz, Department of Justice, Office of the Inspector General. And in it, they respectfully requested that Michael Hurwitz open an investigation into the potentially unlawful actions of Bill Barr and officials at the Federal Bureau of Prisons in depriving me of my freedom in order to silence me, violating my constitutional rights. And they could not have been any clearer when they said we cannot have a justice system where friends of President Donald Trump, such as Roger Stone and Michael Flynn, get special treatment while those who speak out against him are wrongfully punished. They then go on to use the Democrats' adage that no one is above the law, not this president, not the attorney general, and not the officials at the Federal Bureau of Prisons. And I, and I call bullshit on it. That's 18 months ago. 18 months ago. And so far, no investigation has been opened. It also goes to the point that I know that Congressman Eric Swalwell had put in FOIA requests for information that's basically on point with what Ted Lieu and Hakeem Jeffries did. And after 18 months, a violation of, a, of, your, of your constitutional right, of a citizen's constitutional right, by the President of the United States, by a complicit and willing Attorney General, I mean, this to me is so much bigger than me. This is about, for God, God, you know, God forbid, Congressman, you're certainly not one of Trump's favorites. So if hypothetically he ends up becoming president in 2024, just like Richard Nixon had it, you know, an enemies list, I know I'm on it. You may be on it. You're certainly not going to be number one like me, but you could be. 10, 12, 15, you, shouldn't, you should not have to worry for your freedom, for your safety. Things like this cannot go, un, it can, you cannot ignore an investigation. And that's what they've done so far. And yet Democrats control all of it. No one could get any FOIA requests done. Nobody can get an investigation done. I mean, they made me into a political prisoner in my own country. I'm asking you, why? How is this happening? Michael, I agree with you totally, and I've, I've written letters, and I hate to admit the fact that when congressmen write letters to the president or administrative officials, oftentimes they, they never, the president never sees them, almost all the time, and I doubt to turn to Garland sees them. I went to Garland right before he came to testify before our committee, and I, and I told him about several letters I'd written him, and I, had, I thought my responses were, were, were just uh, basically form letters. And that I was disturbed by him. I would like to see, for him to see him. And he told some staffer, you know, make sure he gets a response and blah, blah, blah. I don't think Garland ever saw that. And I was urging him to prosecute Trump. And, and, and that what we were seeing was, was as you've expressed, uh, concern for the country and for the future of the country and that there was no more to, important time to act. The time when a Judge Katzman would have acted. And I tried to implore him on Justice Katzman and, and try to get a little uh, uh, guilt out of him because he respected Katzman and hold Katzman up to him as a as a figure that he should try to aspire to. But they don't see the letters and I don't know what they do and I'd like to get him, you know, I can't go over to Justice and just knock on the door and say, I want to see Merrick Harlan. I don't think I could see him. He comes to the committee once or twice a year and that's it. He does his job, but they, they, they don't really, you know, as a congressman, I get tired of getting form letters and that's basically what we get. And I don't know if he even sees Ted Lewis or, or Hakeem Jeffries or my letters. 
Do you mind if I ask you, how come you can't? You're a member of Congress. You're an elected official. If I was an elected official, I would go knock on his door. What are they going to do? Throw me out? They're going to arrest me as a congressman going to see the attorney general of the United States? And if, in fact, he didn't take my, you know, my, my phone call or meet, I would reach out to the president and I would say, listen, I'm a big supporter of yours, Joe. I'm behind you 100 percent and our Democratic Party. But this is important to me. This is important to the democracy of this country. It's important to our Constitution and our future. If you're not going to turn around and speak to your attorney general, get rid of him or make him be responsive. I expected this from from Bill Barr. I expected it from Trump because I know Trump and I know exactly how he got Bill Barr to become complicit in his schemes but not from Biden, not from Merrick Garland. I agree with you, and I understand your outrage, and I have it myself. And there are lots of times I get very uh, despondent about the, the relationship that, that we have. Uh, and Biden, I've been a big supporter, and I've gotten very little out of it. And, and maybe my next term might be different, but uh, I've tried to work with the team, and it doesn't get you anywhere. But Biden has not been, uh, and, and Merrick Garland, too, I respect him, but they'll, they'll, they'll put you off on an assistant. And they'll say, yeah, you should see this person or that person. And the odds of getting in to see Garland are be slim and none, slim and none. I ran into him once at the diplomat a couple of three years ago. Nice fella. I saw him and I kind of thought, I know this guy. And I thought, oh, yeah, that's the guy who almost became Supreme Court. Nice fella. But I don't know. And I think he's I think he's got. You know, he gives you the answer. I can't talk about cases I can't talk about, you know, whether they, they, we do have cases or don't have cases, investigations. It's hard to answer that. And, and they really do have to kind of keep that close to their vest uh, to, to be able to proceed properly and, and, and to not convict people in the press because the attorney general says we're investigating. them. So I understand that. I don't like it. And, um, you know, it, some of that stuff just maybe happens in the movies. I wish I could be like Jimmy Stewart and go in there and tell them. Yeah. It's just very disappointing. But I've tried and I continue to try. And we are having a, a crime subcommittee. I think it's this week. It might be next week. Uh, and we're going to one of the issues I'm going to bring up is the, the Bureau of Prisons. And it's going to be on the Bureau of Prisons. And this guy that was fired, I, I forget his name, but it was Michael a, Car- Michael Carvajal. He, he really wasn't fired, but he left a little early. He resigned. Yeah. yeah. And and he they finally did get the, the, the credits because of the I.G., report that they started assigning good time credits to people for the uh, uh, first, what was it called? The first act, first, the first step act, first step yeah. act. So, so they're starting to get that implemented, getting people out and hopefully going to get, hopefully it's going to get down to people uh, who have got uh, um, punishments beyond incarceration, but that's going to happen. I'm asked about that man and why it didn't happen and who's going to be the next head of the Bureau of Prisons, but that'll be at the next crime subcommittee here. Yep. You may, you may remember I actually filed an action against the Bureau of Prisons for the earned time credit. It went before Judge Codal. Uh, Judge, Judge Codal ended up ruling against me despite the fact that um, I was piggybacking off of the case brought by Donya Perry. Um, I believe it's Ortiz uh, case um, that Judge Renee Marie Bum out of New Jersey turned around and said that they have an obligation to do it and to do it now, not to wait till January 25th. That's why they're waiting. Um, that's why they're doing so much now, because come January, well, it's 24th, they had to have it uh, implemented. 
the way the government was seeing it, the way the Bureau of Prisons was seeing it, we have to begin the implementation. And Judge Bum turned around and said, absolutely not. It needs to be fully implemented by the 24th. I have my papers ready to go. I do know about a dozen and a half inmates that have been taken off of home confinement and put on supervised release. Now, people have to remember this is for eligible people and you have to be of the lowest classification. Uh, I'm still waiting for mine, even though I'm off home confinement. I still sit on supervised release. So I want to be released from supervised release altogether. I meet all the criteria and it should be done come the 25th, I'll be filing another action against them. And I want to bring it right back to Judge Kodal and let him understand that this is exactly what I told you needed to happen 11 months ago. But thank God it's finally happening. But with that, Congressman Cohen, I want to thank you for your time. I want to thank you for all your assistance and everything for bringing, you know, uh, the issue that happened to me, which I define as democracy in peril, thanks to Trump and Bill Barr, and really as a caution to the fact that the next Donald Trump, because I don't think it'll be him, the Donald Trump 2.0 could be much worse. Thank you, Michael. It's been good to be with you. You are have been a political prisoner, but I admire your voice greatly that you have extended and, and putting these issues out to, the, to your listeners. It's important that they get the, 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 the unvarnished truth. And I thank you so much for being with us today. And now for today's mea culpa. With the slew of subpoenas issued for Trump's inner circle and family, it truly looks like the case is being made against the former president that he presided over a vast conspiracy to overthrow the election and incite the insurrection at the Capitol. In short, the man, for lack of better word, is likely fucked. This is in addition to the latest developments in the New York State AG's case against the Trump org, his children, and Donald Trump himself. So there it is. The walls are crumbling. The house of cards is falling. Trump's long-standing and widely reported actions will finally result in dire consequences. Until that is, the Trump Organization's legal team pushes back and ultimately, the organization reaches a settlement agreement and until something else emerges as the new source of Trump's inevitable downfall. History has repeated itself time and time again with Trump the walls look like they're closing in with prison, with banishment, or at least some accountability at hand. Until magically, somehow Trump wriggles free like a goddamn Houdini. It's a depressing fucking pattern. But the Donald's ability to wriggle out of jams has long depended heavily on the support of his allies and supporters. And, in some cases, his attorneys. There is a massive ecosystem dedicated to helping Trump pry himself fucking free from controversy. An ecosystem that is by now extremely well versed in how to make that happen. It has been strained and with the Access Hollywood tape or the riot at the Capitol on January 6th, but no wriggle proof jam has been identified yet. The committee itself faces a ticking clock with the midterms approaching and we must not count on these honorable people to be the sole entity working to safeguard democracy. And we must resign ourselves to the fact that punishing Donald Trump could likely take years. It's entirely likely that the dipshit children face prison before or instead of their father. But that doesn't mean we give up. It's like Lucy with the football. We have to move forward, even if we know we'll have our hearts broken time and again. To give up is to let Trump win. One of these days, he will truly be cornered and will not be able to wriggle free. 
But until then, we will keep up the pressure. We will keep fighting. We will keep doing what we need to do in order to hold him accountable. And I mean criminally. And thanks for listening. Mea Culpa is brought to you by Audio Up, Midas Touch, and LSJ Media. And it's written and produced by Jimmy Jelinek. Executive producers are Jared Gustat, Jimmy Jelinek, myself, Michael Cohen, and Phil Alberstadt. Our editor is Lisa Orkin. It may be a new day politically, but nowadays the landscape is more confusing than ever. Donald Trump may have lost the battle for the presidency, but in many ways, Trumpism is winning the war on the state and local level. Mea Culpa is here to help guide you through the wilderness and keep you informed. And let's face it, we all want Trump, Rudy, and the rest of these seditious traitors to see justice. And folks, it's coming. So stay tuned as I guide you through the twists and turns of the criminal process that will ultimately see them behind bars. Mea culpa, nothing but the truth. <laughs>